Welcome to the Something to Gnaw On podcast, a short parable-style devotional for the Christian with a short attention span, usually. Right now, we're doing a crash course through the Old Testament, designed to give a basic understanding of how it's laid out, and hopefully pique your curiosity enough to take the initiative to gnaw on Scripture yourself without being intimidated by such a big book. And if you're a seasoned student of the Bible, just look at this as a refresher course, and hopefully you'll begin to dig deeper into the Word. This episode is part five in the series covering the book of Esther. My mom is a saint. My dad is too, but we'll talk about him another day. But every saint makes it through some tough times before sainthood. And my brothers and I unintentionally provided such an atmosphere. And from what I understand, my mom is quite grateful for our role in her sainthood. That being said, there were a couple of episodes that caused me to question this issue of sainthood. I need to add here that the mild-mannered pastor's wife becomes a totally different person when she's watching football or other sports like basketball or boxing or wrestling. If ever there was a Jekyll and Hyde scenario for mom, sports were it, especially when it involved her kids. And if I'm not mistaken, my dad would try to sit with a bit of distance between him and mom at my basketball games because mom became a bit of a different or excitable person at the games. That said, while living on Vashon Island, my older brother and I got into a shadow boxing match. As happens between brothers sometimes, one will take it to the next level, and things begin to spiral. This particular match was being held in front of my mom and dad. After blocking several punches, Jim snuck one past my defenses and tagged me right on the jaw. Apparently, I have what's called a glass jaw, and I never felt it, but I fell to the ground in a dazed and confused state of mind. I knew Jim was going to get in trouble for this one. How could he not when it happened right in front of mom and dad? When I regained my senses, I was a bit shocked to find my mom laughing. She has this cute laugh that she tries to keep hidden. Her face turns red, her hand covers her mouth trying to keep it shut, and the laughter building behind her hand keeps her from being able to do anything practical, like speaking or disciplining my brother. A few years later, we were living in Montana, and my mom, my little brother, Dave, and me were in the basement watching TV. And as it happens between brothers, we got into a bit of a scrapping match. I had the weight advantage and five years of experience on my side. I managed to get Dave on his stomach and proceeded to sit on his shoulder blades, looking down towards his feet. And what happens next is the stuff of legends. I looked at his backside and saw a brand new pair of tidy whities flash in me. So I grabbed a hold of them and proceeded to give Dave the biggest atomic wedgie ever. There was no way he was ever going to be able to wear those again. He began to flail, but due to my weight on his shoulders, he couldn't break loose. Eventually, he started kicking his feet, which proved disastrous. While tugging on the whities like a cowboy reining in a runaway horse, I managed to grab one of his feet and then the other at which point I hooked said undies over his feet. Every time he'd move, he'd wedge himself even worse. The beauty of it is that I finally got off his shoulders to let him go, and he couldn't reach his feet with his hands. He couldn't get free. He laid there on his stomach, rolling one way and then the other, unable to free himself. Like a punk teenage brother, I sat there and just laughed at him. And so did Mom. He looked up at her to be saved from this predicament, just like she had done so many times before. 
But her laughter paralyzed her, and she just sat in the rocking chair, red-faced with laughter, eyes watering, and unable to do anything in the moment. The look on Dave's face was priceless, looking up to be saved by Mom, only to be disappointed by her inability to act on his behalf in the moment. I guess it was a rite of passage, because I remember the same frustration too. I haven't talked about it much thus far, but when reading any book of the Bible, it's necessary to look at who the audience is. Who's initially on the receiving end of the book or the letter? Understanding what the audience was going through helps us with the original intent of Scripture. Looking at the audience of Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and we'll get to Nehemiah next week, but there's an underlying theme, and the book of Esther is no exception to this. The original audiences for these books is the exiles that remained in the Babylonian Empire. And the actual events happen in the capital city of Susa. Several baseline questions arise for the exiles. Here are a few that one commentator tosses out. Is God still interested in us? Are His covenants still in force? Do God's promises to David still have meaning to us? This is a group of people laying on the ground, metaphorically speaking, in exile, and looking up, like my little brother did, to be set free from their torment. And if ever there was a book that answered these questions with a resounding yes, Esther may be it. It's not answered in theological proofs or theoretical musing. This is a rock-hard story, more of a testimony of God's working, if you will in real time for the Jews to see in the moment. Let me give you a quick crash course through the book in bullet format, and then we'll dig into some deeper details. The story begins in the first few years of the reign of King Xerxes and is located in Susa, not Babylon. King Xerxes throws a party and asks the queen to come out so he can show her off to the guests, and she denies him in front of the guest. In turn, Xerxes terminates her duties as queen and sets out to look for a new queen. A Jew named Mordecai found out about this overrated beauty pageant and got his cousin enrolled. Spoiler alert, she wins, and her name is Esther. But she keeps her nationality a secret. Not only does she win, she gains considerable favor in the process. Mordecai then overhears of a murder plot to kill Xerxes, forwards the information to Esther, who in turn informs the king. The plot is found out to be true, and the men are executed, and Esther and Mordecai are honored for their service to the king. As life moves forward for all the characters, one of Xerxes' advisors, named Haman, fosters a hatred for Mordecai and the Jews. And it's important to note here that Haman is also an Amalekite, with a long-standing hatred for the Jews. Haman sets out with a plan to kill every Jew. Part of his methodology of what to do and how to do it came from Purim, or the Persian word for casting lots, and this will come into play towards the end. To do this, he has to get a decree from Xerxes. He needs permission. 
The important thing to note here, and you'll read about it in Daniel as well, but much is made of what is called the law of the Medes and Persians. And that's mainly that the king's law cannot be undone. It can't be repealed. If you remember Daniel being thrown in the lion's den, the king wanted to change his ruling, but he couldn't. Granted, God protected Daniel, but it's impossible to revoke the law of the Medes and Persians. Haman is successful in getting Xerxes to sign the death warrant of the Jews. It's important to note here also that there's a significant time frame at work to get this accomplished and to get it enacted, which allows time for Esther, who finds out what's going on, to let the king know that she is, in fact, a Jew. And while he can't undo the law, he does the next best thing. He authorizes the Jews to use whatever force necessary to protect themselves. And let's just say they defend themselves quite well. And as a result of this justice, Mordecai was promoted to a position similar to prime minister, and he was honored and respected by the people. A similar picture to what had happened to Joseph in Egypt. Queen Esther ended up with a higher level of honor and respect, and many other people throughout the land literally became Jews. That is to say, they were not Hebrew in DNA, but they were converts to Judaism. And this should not be overlooked or taken lightly in this day. Converting for the females would have been an easy thing, but for the men, it would mean circumcision. And all I got to say on this one is that you must be pretty committed to the cause if you're going to get that tidbit of cosmetic surgery done. And now somewhere in this melee, Xerxes has Haman hanged. And ironically, it's on the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai. And shortly after Haman's death, his ten sons are hanged on there too. And to round out the events... Queen Esther establishes a festival to celebrate being saved from extermination, and oddly enough, it's called the Festival of Purim. And with that, you have the Cliff Notes version of the Book of Esther. As quick as that was, I will tell you that there is so much more to go through, so much more to extract from the story. But for now, that's the nuts and the bolts of it. Okay, let's take a quick break, and as always... Feel free to take a break, press pause, and pick this up at a later time or power on through. You make the call. This study really does get interesting in this next segment. We're going to hit a bit of World War II history in the process, which may sound weird to you to begin with, but trust me, it's quite interesting. But I want to take just a moment to say thank you to all who have visited the online store and supported the podcast in that fashion. Right now, we have some pretty cool and comfortable hoodies on sale. But what I haven't talked about with regard to the store, I realize that sometimes people may not always be in the market for a hoodie or what I've got on sale at that moment. And they may just want to support the podcast monetarily. So if that's you and you want to visit the store, there's an icon for contributions only. It's pretty self-explanatory. But if you'd like to take advantage of that, knock yourselves out. And feel free to email me if you have any questions about that. The links will be in the show notes. Okay, enough of that. Let's get back to the good stuff here. Okay, now that we have the baseline story down, I want to take a moment and look at some random details of the book. The events of this book both happen and are recorded relatively close to each other. 
So it's almost like a real-time testimony, as opposed to Ezra writing about King David hundreds of years later. It's plausible to think that there were those who experienced the fighting listed in the book and the death of those supporting Haman, that they were unaware of the backstory of why they were given a royal edict to behave as they did. As far as a timeline is concerned, the events of Esther happen between Ezra chapter 6 and chapter 7, which is why we're tackling this book before we get into the book of Nehemiah. As we discussed last week, it's believed that Ezra wrote Chronicles and Ezra and probably compiled Nehemiah. Many manuscripts have the books of Ezra and Nehemiah grouped together or as one book by itself. Esther, on the other hand, clearly has a different author and is most likely why Esther is placed after Nehemiah. In fact, where Ezra goes to the extreme to mention words like God, Lord, worship, prayer, sacrifice, Esther mentions none of these. The closest in the book that we get to any of these is when the word fast is used, which has nothing to do with speed, of course, but going without eating and spending that time praying. Historically, people have questioned whether or not it should be in the canon of Scripture due to this little factoid. But as one commentator said, the absence of these elements highlights the fact that God is all over the situation. Maybe it's good to look at things like the great theologian Yogi Berra would, when he said, that's too coincidental to be a coincidence. And as it would apply to the book of Esther, there's no way that any combination of the events in this story is a coincidence. God's hand is clearly at work to save his people. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it today, but there are several Jewish scholars who speak of the Tetragrammaton. That's your, uh, that's your power word of the day. Why don't you work that into a nice romantic conversation with your wife and see how far it gets you. But the Tetragrammaton is the four Hebrew letters that form the name of God. And you got to love it when they use a 14-letter word to describe a four-letter word. But anyhow, they point to transcripts of the book of Esther where it appears that these letters appear in code. Of course, that's my verbiage. But the gist of the argument is that God is definitely in the manuscript. And I'll post an article in the show notes from a rabbi that highlights this. Well, I find this intriguing. I'm not convinced of this. And because this doesn't change things biblically one way or another, in fairness, I'll post the article that calls it into question. And I would caution chasing these rabbits. But let me mention one more for the sake of conversation. That article mentions something else that I found intriguing, and that's a date buried in the manuscript in the dating of the death of Haman's sons. And we'll get to that shortly, but the bottom line is that all ten are hanged. But an interesting number emerges in the manuscript. I'll let you read the full article in detail, but the number counts from creation and prophetically points to October of 1946. And I'll let the rabbis again explain how that works out. But here's the interesting part. Whether you're skeptical about the numbering in the book of Esther, the events of October 16, 1946 are significant. Prior to this date, 
12 Nazi officers and architects of Jewish genocide were convicted to be hanged. One ended up committing suicide, one evaded capture and was tried in absentia, and the 10 remaining were to be hanged on October 16, 1946. While the date is interesting, what is of even more interest to me is the last words of a man named Julius Stryker. I hadn't heard of Stryker before this, but he was one of the most vehement proponents of genocide. He stopped on the first platform of the gallows with a terrifying shriek yelled, Heil Hitler, then proceeded to yell two more simple words. Purim Fest 1946, simply translated Purim Festival 1946. I suppose it highlights to some extent his knowledge of the Bible in history. Haman's ten sons were hanged, which signified the freedom of the Jews now from the hands of Haman and his family. Upon further inspection of his home, Stryker was obsessed with the Jews and seemed bent to pick up the mantle and finish what Haman started so many years prior. In fact, he had a newspaper that was dedicated for over 25 years to propaganda against the Jews and was considered the major drive behind the success that they had in terms of genocide. Haman may be the first account of a full-on plan to exterminate a people group based on their DNA, and they all hanged for it. Stryker was bent on picking up where Haman left off, and they all hanged for it. Purim was the festival instituted by Mordecai and Esther, and is a bit of a play on words because Haman cast lots in his planning process to exterminate the Jews. The word for lot is Purim. Somewhere between the courtroom, the jail cell, and the gallows, I tend to think that Stryker finally acknowledged that he was no better than Haman or his sons when he yells out from the gallows, Purim Fest 1946, both an acknowledgement of the Jews' victory in Persia 2,400 years previous and the defeat of the Nazis in World War II. It's worth noting that as startling as Stryker's statement is, we all know the depths of the hatred of the Jews within the ranks of the Nazis. But to that end, and I take this from an article in the Torah, I'm sorry, that's really what it's called, it's thetorah.com, anyhow, and I'll post a link in the show notes, but the Nazis used the Jewish holidays for particular savagery, and these days had become known as Goebbels' calendar, Goebbels being the chief propagandist in the Nazi regime. Consequently, many atrocities were committed on these days. On Purim of 1942, ten Jews were hanged in revenge for Haman. Literally, that's what they said, in revenge for Haman. On Purim of 1943, in a move of deception, the Nazis asked for ten volunteers to be traded for ten Germans living in Palestine. Seizing the opportunity to return to the Promised Land, ten volunteered and were subsequently shot. Again, note the number, ten. It's a very significant number in this deal between the Germans and the Jews. Within the ranks of the Nazis, there was a solid understanding of what had happened to Haman and his sons. But rather than learn from his mistake, they thought they could accomplish what he failed to do, and they could not have been more wrong. 
Lastly, one of the things that I found so interesting has been hiding in plain sight in the book from the beginning, and it's bound up in the name Esther. Basically, it's this. Esther has two meanings, a Hebrew meaning and a Persian meaning. And the two could not be more beautifully complementary, although it took me a while to see. In Hebrew, it means hidden or concealed, which makes sense as Esther is concealing her identity as a Jew from Xerxes. In Persian, it means star. Simple enough, right? I was stewing on this the other day, and it took a while, but it finally hit me. Why couldn't both these meanings be true at the same time in the story of Esther? It really is a beautiful thing for the Jews. Their salvation in this matter was there all along, like a star in the daylight hours. Scientifically, we know it's out there, but staring at a blue sky, you won't see them. But as it gets darker, the star will shine. And the darker it gets, the brighter it gets. The star is concealed in plain sight. Both meanings of Esther come true in Queen Esther. The Deliverer was there all along. It's an interesting parallel of Jesus in the New Testament. In the book of Revelations, chapter 22, he is referred to as the bright morning star amongst his many names. In the Gospels, he is the Deliverer, the Messiah. The Apostle John describes him several times as the light of the world. Starting in the first chapter of his Gospel, he calls Jesus light six times. And in the great chapter 3, where we get the most famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, in that chapter, he refers to Jesus as light five times. And like Esther, the light was hidden, hidden in Nazareth for 30 years prior to his ministry, prior to his delivering the people from their death sentence of sin. At the beginning, I mentioned two of the questions that the exiles seem to have had, according to one commentator at least. Those questions were, is God still interested in us? And do God's promises still have meaning to us? And the answer in Esther is a resounding yes. With regard to the question of, do God's promises still have meaning or application to us? I would say in addition to the messianic promises, I think of the promises recorded in Psalms, like Psalm 91, quote, The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me, I will protect those who trust in my name, and when they call on me, I will answer. Now, let me break in here real quick. If you know the story, what did Esther and Mordecai do before she approached the king? It's the only place in the book where anything remotely close to religious or spiritual happens. And again, the book has no record of the word God or pray or worship or sacrifice. But in Esther chapter 4, the queen calls Mordecai to assemble all of the Jews in Susa for a fast for three days. And she commits her maids and herself to fast for three days. And I think it's fair to assume that they didn't just gather to simply not eat. They gathered to fast and pray. Here's how God's promise finishes out in Psalm 91. Quote, I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. 
I will reward them with long life and give them my salvation. End quote. And like other episodes in history, this is exactly what happens in Esther. This is that moment when the exiles are on the ground like my little brother. Although it's obviously more severe circumstances, they're looking up at God and saying, are you going to act on our behalf in this moment? And the answer in Esther is a resounding yes. And while this book was initially written to the exiles, there is definitely application for us today. Is God interested in us? Is God interested in you? Will he honor the promises of his word? When we're lying on the ground and unable to free ourselves from the brutal atomic wedgie that life has given us, is God going to step up? And again, the answer is a resounding yes. And I should add, as I wrap up this episode, that despite my depiction of my mom in this episode as a fanatical sports mom who laughs hysterically at our pain, she's one of the most godly women I know, and she's a treasure for sure. And the beauty of this episode is that her middle name is none other than Esther, a true star, hidden for a while as a sports mom, but a star nonetheless. And guys, that is the end of Esther. Next week, we'll hit Nehemiah, and we will wrap up the books of history and head into the books of poetry. So hope you guys are getting something out of this. Appreciate you. Appreciate your support. Appreciate your prayers. Until next week, God bless.